I've talked to you about this before, so none of this is going to be a surprise to you, but let me just say it again. I am someone who does not like a mess. I have a philosophy that I try to live by, and that is that everything in my home or my office, it itself has a home. When you leave it out somewhere, this object or whatever it may be, it gets sad. (laughs) Because what it really wants, more than anything else, is to go home. So by putting away said object, not only are you making the space around you look better and less cluttered, you are returning an unhappy, inanimate object to the place where it belongs. And it will forever be grateful to you for that. Now, there are some members of my family that do not hold to this same philosophy. (laughs) One member who shall remain nameless has developed in his 12 years (laughs) the philosophy that if he gets something out and he's going to use it any time in, say, the next 14 days, it should be left out where he last used it. Another member of my family, who will also remain nameless, has developed in his 16 years the philosophy that things are easier to find if you spread everything out over every available surface. Yes, I see some of you have that same. A third member of my family, who will again remain nameless, has used her 40 years on this earth to show that she is wonderful in every way and in no way needs to change anything about anything. It's true. It's true. In our spaces, we can all live with different kinds of mess. And while I may hate it when things are left out and spaces are cluttered, other people swear by the clutter. They claim, erroneously, I have to believe, that if they were to put things away, they would never find them again. I'm not saying there's faulty logic involved there, but come on. To those people, I say, I love you. God loves you, and I will pray daily for the renewal and mercy of your soul. (laughs) Now, the problem with my philosophy, of course, is that it is one thing to talk about my office or my living room being a mess, but it is another thing for me to talk about my life and how messy my life actually is. And as much as I may like for my life to be tidy, neat, and clean for everything to be put away, I know that my life is not really like that. My life is messy. And it might seem clean on the surface, but if you look closely enough, there is dirt, lots of dog hair, and things left out that shouldn't have ever been left out. I remember talking to a friend uh, one time about cleanliness because this person was also a a very neat and and clean person. And she said something that haunts me to this day, um, that the way she can, she tells if someone, okay, let me, the way she can tell if someone's house is clean is that she goes in and she looks at the baseboards. Yeah. 
And if the baseboards are dirty, then the house, in her opinion, was not really clean. Um, that's horrifying, people. <laughs> that evaluation scared even me. But it also speaks something true to me that while my life might seem to be put away and neat and tidy, if you were to look at the baseboards, you would see that it's really not as clean as it might seem. Now, how do we feel about our messy life? For a long time, I thought that those messes should, should not be a part of my life. I thought that the kind of life I wanted to live required me to be, to be clean all the way down to the baseboards. So that if anyone inspected my life, they wouldn't see anything but a clean surface and smell the smell of Clorox. The problem was that no matter how hard I tried, I could never seem to get on top of the mess. Because, you know, as messy as life is now in this moment, it's just going to get messier as the day goes on. And I think about my morning, thinking about church and getting ready for church and, and, and wanting, being so excited to be here and then hearing about my mom, right? This, these things are going to keep happening. And... No matter how hard I tried, I, I, I just couldn't stay on top of it. I would, I would scrub the carpet, but those old stains, you know the ones. You can probably point to where all of them are in your house. They still rise up again. My life is messy, and it took me a long time to accept that and to find some sort of peace with the mess. But that's just the personal stuff. When I think about how life is in general, I can't ignore how there is mess in almost every corner of the lives that we live. How wonderful, I think, it would be if I could simply plan something and see it work like the way I planned for it to work. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> Daphne says yes. That's not how things go. Life gets in the way, and it makes our once tidy plans extremely messy. We disagree with people sometimes intensely, and conflict is introduced to our lives. And it's amazing how other people get in the way of what we want to do, as if they have no idea how important our plans are. And woe to the person who introduces a mess into our tidy lives. Now, some of the mess is self-inflicted, right? We have to take some responsibility for this. Um, we, we get sick, we run out of money, our idea does not work like it should have. A million things can go wrong with any sort of thing. And, and, and any time that something happens which is outside of our ability to control, we are forced to make decisions that we never really wanted to make in the first place. And we have to introduce this ugly word, compromise. 
We have to compromise, and we don't want to compromise. That's why we put the plan out in the first place, is to have a standard for how we want things to be done and how it should go. But the mess dictates that we must alter our course. And in many of these times when we have to alter our course, um, we get discouraged or just plain angry. This is not how this was supposed to go. You know? It was supposed to be different. The problem, I think, is really not necessarily that things go wrong. I mean, things go wrong, again, all the time. The problem, I I think, might be that we think our experience should be one thing. And we are, when we are faced with our experience actually is, in the carrying out of whatever it is we are doing, we don't quite always know what to do with that discrepancy. It's frustrating, it's sad, it's hurtful. It makes us feel all the feels about what's going on. And maybe deep down, though we might not say this at the time, We think things should be easier. Now, we'll say all day long, oh, I know things are a mess and stuff happens and you just got to roll with it. But we, deep down inside of us, want to be able to control the mess. We want to be able to push the things aside that get in our way. We want to be able to move and do as we think we should be able to. And there's a part of us that thinks, as Christians, that our life should be sort of conflict-free. The world would be a much better place if God and everyone else just did things the way we wanted them to. We have, a very, uh, we have some very distinct expectations of God. And some of them are stated or some of them are not. But again, here it is sort of in a nutshell. As the children of God, we think that God should bless us, right? And what does that blessing mean? Well, that's the tricky part, isn't it? We sometimes think that God's blessing should look like things going the way we would like for them to. After all, you know, we're good people. We prayed about it. So shouldn't it go the way that we think it should go? I mean, we involve God in this thing. And even though we know that we are aligning ourselves to God's will, and we talk about this a lot, we believe that somewhere along the line, our lives will get easier. Because God's will can't be that far away from my will. Just can't be. And there's a part of us that believes or hopes that God will line things up for us and the mess and the conflict will somehow be like vacuumed out of the room by God. But that doesn't happen. I mean, it hasn't happened in my experience. But again, I have dirty baseboards. It can be disheartening and we wonder why God doesn't remove 
the obstacles that are in front of us, or we begin to ask ourselves why he allowed them to be there in the first place. I mean, God is the overcomer, right? So why are these things still here? And depending on the mess, some of us can never rectify the God who loves us with the God who seems to allow such great chaos or conflict or messiness. But here's the truth, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Mess, conflict, failure is a part of our lives. And it is something, though we may not like it, that God not only allows, but sometimes encourages. We're going to start today a, a study of, of Jacob, who had an extremely messy life. But it's not like Jacob was just born into a neat and clean world and made it messy. If you think about the story of God and his people, and if you think about what faith actually is, we see that conflict is something that maybe God needs for us to have in our lives in order to become who he wants us to be. So the first question I want you to think about this morning is this. Is there faith without conflict? Is there faith without conflict? Uh, Hebrews 11, chapter 1, which you know, has, gives us our main biblical definition of faith, says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. What we hope for, that which we do not have yet and what we do not see, meaning it cannot be proven by touch or sight, something that is beyond our reach. And the hard part about this definition is that these things are necessary elements when it comes to faith in God. For faith to truly be involved, there's going to have to be a leap on our part, a willingness to step out into the unknown to that space that is beyond our control for no other reason than we believe that our loving God is there and will guide us and work through what happens. The hard part is this means that we have to, through faith, give up control of a lot of things we pretend we have control over right? We don't know for sure what is going to happen when we step out in faith. And because of that, we have to place our future, our lives, our decisions, our choices into the hands of this God that we believe in. And that space, that stepping out space, can be really messy and difficult for us to deal with. And you see this expressed in several different psalms throughout the Bible. If you want to look at one sometime this week, read Psalm 71. And you see this throughout the psalms. In the, in the middle of various messes, the writer is able to look back on his life and recognize all the times that God has been there and delivered. 
At the same time, he recognizes that the future is unknown, that though God has been ever-present in his life, he prays that God will not forget him and that God will continue to be there for him through everything. And then this is almost always followed by the resolution to praise God in spite of the circumstances, in spite of all the things that are going on, that, that God will be praised no matter what happens. And here's what's so interesting to me about those different formulations, which again, you see over and over throughout the Psalms. Even though God has proven himself to the writer of the Psalms, the writer recognizes that there is still an unknown to the whole process. There is still chaos. There is still potential conflict. There is a mess that the writer is living in right in that moment. And he, putting on this page what it feels like to live in the middle of a mess when you know you have a faithful God. And struggling to come have that same kind of faith. So you'll see things in the Psalms like prayers that God will remember the writer. Prayers that God will see or will hear and be present. And the writer always has confidence in God. But the writer also recognizes that a part of this whole faith thing is not knowing yet what God is going to do. And having to sort of wade through the mess to get there. The place where you know what God has done or what God is doing. Which tells us that by its very nature, friends, faith is messy. Faith is messy. But more than that, if things in life are not messy or we're not having conflict or chaos, if everything were to go our way, then maybe that experience is not really faith. After all, how hard do you have to step out into the unknown if you know everything that God is going to do for you and how he's going to make it right. Is that really faith? Where is the unknown? Where is the trust? Conflict, then, mess, worry, whatever you want to call it, becomes a necessary proving ground for us. It is the place where we are forced to choose whether we really believe in this stuff or not. Whether we are willing to step into the unknown with God, this God in whom we profess belief, or whether we do not believe it as much as we thought because we find ourselves unwilling to move. It is really when people show that they are willing to give up and step out for the call of God. It is in those moments where people do these kinds of things, this stepping out, that God begins to understand that we are faithful to him. When we let him, as if he needs our permission, be God. It's worth noting that for the vast majority of the Bible, the relationship between God and his people uh, was extremely messy. Uh, not neat at all. 
The mess is introduced in the creation account found in Genesis 2 and 3, and the mess becomes so bad that by, and this startles me every time, even though I know this in my head, it becomes so bad that by Genesis chapter 6, God washes the world, trying to get the mess away. Two chapters in between the fall of man and Noah. Two. By Genesis 12, God was on his second restart. Instead of destroying the earth by flood as he did previously and swore he would never do again, God instead starts over with one family. Abraham, his wife Sarah, and their household. And God's plan was instead of trying to claim all of creation, which he had every right to do, he instead was going to create a nation. But just imagine for a second that you're in God's shoes. I don't know what kind of shoes they are. You are welcome to fill in that blank. You are in God's shoes. And you're 12 chapters into the Bible, second reset. How is God feeling about the mess? What does he think about this? And here's a question you might not have considered. Can he trust Abraham? Can God trust Abraham? Well, maybe. Does God know? Well, the story to a degree, takes us through God's figuring out, if you will, how serious Abraham is about being the leader, the father of this new nation. So Abraham was called out of Ur to follow God. God had promised him a great family, a great nation, and Abraham indeed followed God, wandered all over the place, waited for his promised child, and even though they waited and were so faithful and followed God all over the place, the child did not arrive. In fact, the child did not arrive until both Abraham and Sarah were old, like legit old, like older than Virgil. And so they are living in this tension. And have you ever wondered why God waited so long? Wouldn't it have made sense for him to give them this child while they were still, I don't know, you know, able to run? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even, even like 60, 65 would have been better than 100, right? Like... It's, it's taking the soccer mom position to a whole new place. Um, I think we get the answer to why God waited so long in, in the next story. Because Isaac was born, and he was the child of promise, the, the child through which this great nation and legacy was to be built. And finally, after a lifetime of service, things were going the way that Abraham believed they would go. I mean, waiting a hundred years. Well, let's just be fair. Waiting 80 years to have your first child. And it was in this space that God did something wholly 
unexpected, which we tend to uh, look at from, from really one perspective, because the audacity of this story hits us almost every time. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 this morning, so if you want to open up your Bibles there, we're going to start in verse 1. It's okay. Don't worry about it, Richie. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. So verse 1 sets the stage for us. God wanted to know something, and so he decided to test Abraham to get the answer to his question. And we have struggled with this basic premise on multiple levels. Like, why does God not know what he wants to know? And, and, and why is he going to make Abraham go through this process in order for God to know what he wants to know. Isn't this sort of a cruel thing to put someone through in order to know if they are with you or not? But what we have to realize is that this is serious business to God. A God who has, again, been burned multiple times by the creation that he loves. And so as much as we may not like it, God needed Abraham and Sarah to go through something in order to prove that God was first in their lives. If they are going to be the father and mother of this movement, God needed to know they were first. So verse 2, God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He clarifies it three times. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, this test, of course, challenges Abraham on several different levels. He had to be willing to part with a son that he undoubtedly loved, something that is so awful that we can't really get over that point in the story. It is, it is always there looking over our shoulder as we try to absorb the rest of what was happening. It's something so awful that we have a hard time even rectifying who God is with this moment. But beyond that, beyond just the loss of someone that he loves, God is challenging Abraham to put the entire promise he has made on the line. Because what does Abraham need in order to become the father of a nation? He needs children, right? And he's how old? He's older at this point than when Isaac was born. I know that's a dumb thing to say, but like it's another 12, 15 years down the road, right? So he has to put the whole thing on the line. And this is the question, church. This is the question that God has. Do you trust me enough to put everything you think you know about how life goes on the line? Do you trust me enough to give me what I'm asking you for, even if it makes no sense to anything? 
even if you will never understand, are you willing to do this? This text forces us to understand one simple thing about God, that that he is the one God and he will do as he pleases and that he does not have to do what we want him to do. He does not have to do what you think he should do. It also tells us something really important, that if God has a place that he wants us to reach, sometimes we have to go through the mess in order to become what God wants us to be. And perhaps we can never get there if it's easy. I don't like this any more than you do. But it's what we see here. And so the question, if we're reading this for the first time, would be, well, what is Abraham going to do? Starting in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Worst father-son trip in the history of father-son trips. And to our amazement, Abraham went on this journey that God laid out for him. And we love to speculate about what Abraham must have been feeling or thinking. But on this journey... While Isaac is carrying the firewood that he's going to lay down on, they have this exchange. And Isaac asks the question, who will provide the lamb? And what does Abraham say? God will provide the lamb. And I have to think in that moment, and we know that Abraham was willing to go through it, that Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, how God was going to fix this whole problem of him having children and, and, and being the father of a nation. He didn't know, but there's something about this simple statement that cuts to my heart a little bit. God will provide. In the middle of the messiest of messes, God will provide. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on, on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram, coincidentally, caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God lets Abraham build the altar. He waits for him to put Isaac on the altar. He waits for him to pick up the knife and waits for him to raise it into the air. And then he stops him. At the last moment, God stayed Abraham's hand. And in his heart and his mind, Abraham had already carried this out. It was done. The test was over. And in that statement, which we cannot skip over, God says, now I know. Now I know. Because Abraham walked through the mess, you see, and he trusted God through all of it. And God turned in that moment from being the tester of Abraham to the provider, the one who gave the promise, the one who is faithful, the one who will make all things happen. And it is maybe here in this moment, though, I pray that none of us ever, 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 ever have to go through what Abraham went through. But it's in this moment that we might see, though we do not like it, why testing and conflict play a role in our faith. You see, our God insists on undivided loyalty. He does not want you to kind of believe in him when it's convenient for you. He wants you all the time out of his great love for you. He wants you all the time, and he doesn't want to settle for less. He will not settle for less. So times of testing will come, conflict, messes, things that God has nothing to do with, and things that God might have something to do with. And we are forced to make a choice in those moments. Who is in control? Who do we trust? And it is in those moments where our faith sometimes is found out. But isn't this series about Jacob? Yes, thank you for asking. I got off track there for seven pages. Um, yes, it's about Jacob. And Jacob, as much as Abraham had some messy experiences, Jacob had <laughs> the messiest of lives. And this was the world that he was born into because, you see, Isaac, his father, was the one who was to be sacrificed, who climbed up on that altar and waited for God to provide. God looked into the womb of Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and he declared, not it's a boy or just it's two boys, but he says this in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. 
The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It's a boy! Such hard words, but it tells us something we need to know before we can really start talking about Jacob. Jacob is a child of conflict. He's a child of mess. This means that for Jacob, there is the opportunity for great faith because of the conflict because of the mess. But the road is not going to be easy for him. And frankly, he doesn't do the best job of navigating that road. But he and God are going to have to deal with all of it as it comes. So here's what I want us to consider this morning as we end this time together. But start a journey through an incredibly messy story. Life with God Life with God is more about what happens through the mess than it is about God helping us to avoid the mess. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we can get through the mess and see what God has for us. Because God uses messes to shape and change us. And this is encouraging to me, oddly enough. Because as I've already shared, my life is messy, and there is not a lot I could do about it. I mean, I can do my best in all the areas where I can do my best. But guess what? There's still going to be a mess. And it is encouraging to know that God will use the mess he has created and redeem the mess he hasn't. Let me say that one more time. God will use the mess he has created and redeem the mess that he hasn't. And either way, on the other side of that trouble is something new in God. Amen?